It is a pickle, no doubt about it. Bad news is there's no way if you can really know whether I'm here to help you or not. So it's really up to you. Just have to make up your own damn mind to either accept what I'm going to tell you or reject it. Candy? Garrett McQueen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, the classical music podcast coming to you from under curfew. We Bunk- have, we're, do, we're doing it remote this Bunk- week. Bunker style. <laughs> it's here. It's, 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 uh, I mean, I, I, between quarantine, between curfew, between everything that's going on, we just at home. Let's just stay at home forever. Go ahead and lay out why we have been under curfew for three hours now at this point. So at 7 o'clock tonight, we, uh, the Twin Cities went in lockdown. Right. So as we're recording this, um, protests um, are ensuing in response to the murder of Dante Wright uh, here in the Twin Cities area. Uh, the, the, the local folks put us all under a curfew, four counties. I think the statistic is something like 70% of the state of Minnesota now uh, is under a 7 p.m. curfew to sort of quell any sort of uh, what they would call violence. But, of course, people are still Unrest. out on the streets. Unrest. Anyway, so that that's, that's why this might sound a little different. It might be vibing a little different. But we owe y'all a show. So here we are, Opus 96. Thank you so much for joining us for the Triloquy podcast from the to the uh, day one listeners to folks who are just jumping on to this opus. Thank you so much for being here with us. We appreciate your making this possible and continuing to help us explore a renewed view and renewed conversation surrounding the phrase classical music. Support for this 96th opus of the Triloquy podcast comes from the community school of Boston. I had the pleasure of teaching a master class um, for uh, Janet Underhill, who teaches bassoon there. I listened to some middle school uh, bassoon, trumpet, and trombone and horn students. Hmm. Um, some some great talent coming up in the next generation, Scott. I have to say, based on the conversations we have here, it's hard for me to go into those spaces and talk to kids about their nachschlags and you know how <laughs> these how these traditional European techniques that you know we learn in school that I learn in school that they're trying to perfect how really that needs to go away. So it's it's mm. putting me at at odds at, at, at in some regards. But I I always appreciate reaching out to the kids and getting to play a little bit of something for them. I played them a a Negro spiritual on my, on my bassoon, of course. I, I I come in in character. So shout out to everyone at the Community School of Music in Boston, and a huge thank you to Janet Underhill for having me. Um, we have a very special guest today on this Opus of Triloquy, Urgene Kang, violin extraordinaire, violin uh, teacher down at the University of Arkansas, uh, joins me to talk about um, some history that uh, she made. She, she's a name that you knew already, right, Scott? I've played her recordings. Yeah, she's great. Yeah. She's great. 
Yeah, first uh, uh, the first violinist to record uh, uh, Florence Price's violin concertos, or the other premiere uh, recordings of them. So we talk about uh, the pressures therein, what were her goals uh, surrounding learning about Florence Price and getting this piece of music recorded, um, why it uh, wasn't recorded here in the United States, all sorts of things. So I uh, hope you'll stick around for that. Um, in the triloquy, uh, we're going to reprise something that we got into last week, Scott. We were talking about King FM and mm-hmm. programming and a collaboration I had. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Tamberly Ferguson, friend of the show, um, reached out with some questions concerning that conversation. So we are going to uh, look at a bit of that as well. The downbeat for this opus of Triloquy um, comes from the late Gloria Foster, who famously played the Oracle on The Matrix. Before we started recording, Scott, I asked you who you thought was uh, the main anti- antagonist of those uh, of the series. Matrix. And, yeah, and you said uh, the the agents, right? Maybe Agent Smith? Mm-hmm. Well, um, after going down some rabbit holes and, and all that sort of thing, I, I found some discussions that actually allege that the Oracle was the main antagonist, was the main villain. And I think that ties into some conversations that we're going to have today really interestingly. So we'll get into that um, in, the, uh, in the final movement. Before we get uh, into the first movement, I just wanted to offer warm thoughts and prayers to David Keynes Burnett and his family. David uh, was an Opus 74 guest of Triloquy, a very important member of the black classical music community, um, among many things, for being the record keeper, taking the photos, making sure that at all of these conferences that uh, there is something to uh, remember there. Well, David lost his mother, Ruth, today. Um, so he's uh, going through a, a very difficult time. So um, if you're interested in uh, reaching out to David, he's all over so social media. Um, if you want to send me a note to uh, forward uh, to him digitally, I'll be sure to do that. But uh, deep thoughts mm-hmm. and deep prayers uh, to David Keynes Burnett as he mourns his mother. All right, let's get into the first movement. Rest in peace is uh, the phrase of, of this era, isn't it? Between COVID police brutality and and everything else. We're we're saying a lot of rest and peace. And unfortunately, we have to begin this first movement with one. I'm going to give a sharp to the life of the now late Dante Wright. Dante Wright uh, was pulled over in uh, an area here in the Twin Cities, uh, Brooklyn Center. I'm not all that uh, familiar, Scott. Is there anything that you can tell folks about that end of town? Not much. I've been there myself once, and that was to go and get radar. The yeah the the foster agency that I got radar through was up there. I, it's a drive from where I'm at. A, a little far out, so so not central, you know, to no. uh, the the Twin Cities, but but still certainly um, a, a part of the metro area. Well, the reports that I've seen said that um, Mr. Wright was pulled over for uh, tag Expired registration tags. things, and which which I have. Right now, that's why this is triggering uh, expired uh, tabs, as they say here. I, I grew up saying tags yeah. down south, but um, and and also something about a, an air freshener was was covering something that the police it, something yeah. arbitrary at at the end of the day. Uh, one thing leads to another, and here we have another murder at the hands of the police. I have not watched the video, Scott. I. Likely will not. I mean, I, I think I've seen enough of that. What do you think um, we can learn from the video, or, or what's your response to the footage? I was ambushed by it. I didn't know that that's what I was going to be watching. 
mm-hmm. when it happened. So I was a little bit surprised to actually see the body cam footage because the police chief released it almost immediately in the efforts of being transparent mm-hmm. about it. What do, you, what do you think about that decision? I appreciate it. I appreciate it. it. It doesn't make me feel like they were trying to edit down what they wanted to release or to try to figure out a way to talk about it, you know, like a game plan as to how to spin it, if that makes sense. Right, right, right. So, yeah. Um, and he also said that the reason why he was doing it was to show that he why he believed that it was an accidental discharge of the firearm because the the officer's reaction does seem to indicate surprise that it was the firearm rather than the taser especially when she yelled taser three times which i guess is the protocol now mm-hmm. before firing it that's all i know and um all i saw was uh, a kid who was probably afraid of dying, which is why he started to run. I mean, look at the climate. Look at how badly things have ended, you know, in so many different scenarios for young black men. I saw somebody afraid and running for their life. And I, when people say, well, they might present a danger down the line, I don't know that. Because, because nothing on the warrant he had was violent. Right, right. It was from a, what I saw. No, no, it was a misdemeanor warrant. So that that's the point. Do you do you really got to run the kid down? Do you really do have you to, really have to pull him over? Do you, do you no? My question is: Do you have to tase him and yeah. and and run him down over expired tags or a misdemeanor? I mean, uh, and, and, and this I just have so many questions, and you know, it just all it all, I obviously I'm deferring to this kid was scared. And so and this gets us into the conversation Scott because when you ask is it worth it that is their training those mm-hmm. police officers mm-hmm. are trained to do that if he has a warrant for some weed or something else that's petty mm-hmm. they are still supposed to do what they're supposed to do to detain them it was supposed to be she thought this police officer thought as you said she thought she had her stun gun it was the the bullet gun but even so you know, even if it was the stun gun, it is a part of her training to do right. that in conjunction with that sort of petty crime. So what this gets me to, as we return to over and over again, what is a good police officer? If the training is bad, if all of these, if, if the A1 star student police officer who follows all the rules is being taught bad rules, is that a good police officer? I struggle to answer that affirmatively. No, that's a good point. And that's not a struggle for me as far as naming the police infrastructure as one that has to be dismantled and completely reformed. But the more we see these stories, I hope that there are people that are asking themselves that question. It's not about being personal. I know that your uncle or your brother or your whatever was a so-called good police officer. But we have to talk about the infrastructure under which they're trained and their work. Their training got this guy 
guy killed, got this man killed, even if she was mean, even if she got the, the stun gun, as she says she was supposed to, her training has somebody stunned, tased on the ground right. for something dumb like some weed. Right. That, that, that is the big issue. You know, I was on the line early this morning. Today is, uh, as we're recording this, this is Monday, April 12th. So early this morning, before even the sun came up, I was on the line with BBC Radio. I had spoken with them last summer um, in conjunction with the George Floyd uprising. So they reached back out to get my um, uh, reactions to this. I was in front of the TV late last night um, on Sunday night, uh, Unicorn Riot. Shout out to Unicorn Riot. Um, I saw it was live and we clicked on it. And that's how I learned about this murder. And there was definitely... Um, stuff going on last night. So as we mentioned in the introduction, um, as their attempts to sort of quell uh, more unrest this evening, uh, 7 p.m., we were put on a curfew. This time of year, Scott, 7 o'clock, it's still light outside. I mean, right. it, it's, yeah. it's it's ridiculous. And of course, um, up, uh, protests are still happening up there around that police station. The police station is all fortified. They have all of the uh, policemen there protecting it. And, you know, what what else is being done? What, and, and what other ways are those officers protecting and serving that community? Because, you know, if they're all making sure that the police station doesn't get burned down like the third precinct did last summer, mm-hmm. that means there are police officers not where they would be elsewhere, which, you right. know, again, exhibits the flaw the the fundamental flaw in this whole thing we can get into the origins of policemen as uh, runaway slave catchers you know and, mm-hmm. and and many 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 other just structural problematic things but what i return to i i said this on bbc radio i'll say it here the powers that be do not want this system dismantled because what it would take is a dismantling of what we know as law enforcement. Our very understanding of the police would have to completely change, and the powers that be are afraid of that. And I'll, I'll give an example. It's not only you know nuts and bolts and structural. I think it's cultural. Scott, when you get pulled over, when you, a white man, when you get pulled over by the police, there are certain rules that you follow based on our conditioning. Don't make the police officer nervous. Whatever he says, you obey. If mm-hmm. he asks for your license and registration, you give it. All mm-hmm. the way down to things like that. Mm-hmm. What do you think about the idea of shifting the narrative, inspiring thought among the people that says to them, this police officer does not have authority over you, not even to tell you what to do in, in, in any way. That's what I want to see. That's what I think is a part of the structural change that needs to happen. I think you have a better shot at getting equity in the concert hall before you have a uh, systematic change in law enforcement like that. But do you, what, what, what Sorry brings to you say. to that? Sorry. Well, what brings you to that? Well, when you talk about the supremacy and privilege that's wrapped up in classical music, there's only a certain section of the populace that you have to convince of it, the people who are fans and are going to be interested in what you have to say, right? Law enforcement's going to affect everybody, right? And so that's a lot more minds to change. 
and it doesn't affect everyone in the same way. It doesn't impact right. everyone in the same way, right. unfortunately. So, now, here's the thing, though. I, I still get wicked nervous whenever I get pulled over by an officer because it's that whole first they came for the Jews and I said nothing because I wasn't Jewish and then they came for, you know, they keep coming for somebody until you're the one they're coming for. And I don't, um, I, I don't really give them any credit that they might be in a bad mood and I'm the victim. I could, it could just as well be me getting out of line and ending up a victim. And of course, this tragedy with Dante Wright, what it also brings up is how there are so many that we will never know and some that come to light later on. I'm sure you saw the the footage of the black man in uniform. I, I'm free, I, I don't have his name in front of me right now. Uh, in Virginia. Yeah, mm-hmm. over in Virginia, you know, police lieutenant. pull over a man in a lieutenant, a second lieutenant in the military. And um, with both of his hands outside of the car, pepper spray him and, and all sorts of nonsense. And that happened back in December. And what I'm hearing is that that footage came out because there is a lawsuit. Otherwise, it likely would have been continued to be buried. Of course, that officer um, has now been fired. But as you pointed out, fired because the footage got out. Uh, right. The, it has come to our attention that you found out that this happened back in December. So he's gone now. So where are the good police officers in that precinct? Where's the good police officer know. that decided that something need to be said about that? You know, yeah, so I, and I then know. how many more stories will we never, ever, ever, you know, just know about who that there will never be dash cam footage well, of yeah, the police yeah. officer Scott with his gun to my head. You know, that that footage is not going to come to light somewhere, you know, of, uh, hopefully nothing, you know, tragic happens or whatever. I bring myself up as an example because I'm sure there are so many other people with their own stories, and these are stories that are actively buried. There's that, and then everything that occurred leading up to dash cam footage, that's suspect. You know, as I mean, far as... No, I mean, if we don't have a recording of it, then... We we have to question all of those arrests, all of those actions, right? Every single one of them. Right. Every single one of them. And every single one of the police officers. Look, I'm not going to put you on the spot, Scott. I, I won't even ask you to answer this question. But from my perspective, step number one, when it comes to much of this conversation, is acknowledging the fact that based on training, based on what we have been seeing in the news, in the field... The idea of a good police officer is an oxymoron. Hmm. And we love to pretend that there's a way to go on the inside and fix it from the inside. But we, we need to be more comfortable. Our, our allies, our accomplices, and everyone else, we all need to be more comfortable with that line of thought so that we can understand what the real issue is. Dell sent me an article. I'll, I'll, if I, can, I hope I remember. I'll put it in the description talking about how uh, Minneapolis police officers watched Zootopia as a part of sensitivity training. Did you see that? That's how ridiculous it is out here. They're watching cartoons and counting that as 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 trained. I'll I'll put it I'll I'll put it in the article. I hope uh Dell did let let's Okay, no here, wait, 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 here, wait. Here, now, here, I'll, this... I'll find it. Go ahead. Go ahead while I'm looking. Okay, so is is there something in the movie that is germane to sensitivity training? Or are you telling me that instead of getting sensitivity training, they were watching Zootopia. 
Okay, this is from <laughs> this is from Fox Nine KMSP. So that's the local um, affiliate. The title of this: St. Paul Police Screen St. Paul. So not Minneapolis specifically. St. Paul Police Screen Zootopia as part of anti-bias training. Let me read just a little bit. This um, and this is dated when. Oh, this was 2017. So this is a part of just what's systemic. It says here more than 800 employees of the St. Paul Police Department uh, recently went through their annual equity training. This year, they turned to an animated movie from Hollywood to talk about some serious issues they face every day. Zootopia, which was released last year, won an Oscar for its handling of subjects like prejudice and bias. Now, the animated metaphor for race relations could help police in the real world see those same issues in a new light. If I didn't just buy this phone, I would throw it against the wall and smash it. We aren't talking about ki teaching kindergartners how to share. We aren't talking about even how to teach educators classroom management or how to teach, you know, what we're talking about people that have guns. And it is, there is, there's tax dollars going into getting all of these people in front of a cartoon movie as part of equity training. You see, you see what the problem is? You see what the problem is? I mean, so I, I can tell that that is not news that you had heard. Okay. So, no, real tri triloquy, real reaction. What is your reaction to that? That the police officer that, that I'm supposed to trust, his equity training was watching Zootopia. I got nothing. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there has to be something else, but the fact that I. The, I'm I'm stunned into silence. I'm sorry. I got nothing. So I'm sorry. I got nothing. So I said what I said. I said what I said. I might have to go get one of those four letter uh four letter tattoos. I, I know a tattoo artist here who's doing them for free. You know what I'm talking about. You I know? do. I do. Um. Anyway, I I would like to give a moment of silence to the family and the loved ones of Dante Wright. After a brief moment of silence, I want to remind people that that silence isn't what we all get to benefit from. Again, living here in the Twin Cities, we didn't even talk about, you know, I don't think we've given at all, Scott, on Triloquy, a Chauvin trial update or, or breakdown or anything, because I'm trying to keep that as much in the peripheral mm -hmm. as I can mm -hmm. from my nerves. So we have that going on. We have um, the police continuing to shoot people. There really is. No side. Here, here's here's a moment of silence for the late Dante Wright, followed by what it sounds like to live here right now as we move to our next accidental. Trial of Derek Chauvin, again, trial of Derek Chauvin, continued police brutality, and then we also have another mass shooting, school shooting, to deal with. Before we get into this, let, let me say this to the listeners. 
I spent a lot of time trying to curate and figure out what Scott and I are going to talk about every week and what the flow is going to be. With all of this stuff being thrown in, you know, there's there's a responsibility to talk about these things. I, I, I think we'll we'll get into a little bit of that in the second movement with some of the music you have, Scott. But I, I just wanted to just pause for a brief second and just name that I feel like on this platform, there is a responsibility to name what's happening in the world, not only because it's the right thing to do, but because as a so-called classical music podcast, it's mm. a reflection of what the arts institutions are not doing, mm. you see? And there are ways to engage these conversations that are very important. Anyway, I just wanted to quickly name that, but before we got into it, the 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 gun conversation is one like police brutality that is going to come to a dangerous head as we continue to move forward. Before we speak specifically about the tragedy in Knoxville, I want to read here from ABC News. The uh, The title is Permits Won't Be Needed to Carry Handguns in Tennessee. Tennessee has become the latest state to soon allow most adults 21 and older to carry handguns without first clearing a background check and training after Governor Bill Lee on Thursday signed the measure into law. I signed constitutional carry today because it shouldn't be hard for law-abiding Tennesseans to exercise their Second Amendment rights, said Lee, a Republican approaching his re-election campaign for 2022 in a tweet. So we have in down there in the state of Tennessee, wild, wild west, you know, anybody can just have a gun. And then we're surprised when those guns enter the schools and there's there's repercussions therein. Or that the their young son or daughter finds it in the bedside table. Now, this is a, a difficult conversation because yeah. last summer, I, and I was thinking about this uh, earlier today, you know, it, it haunts me that last summer, Della and myself were going to Target shopping for baseball bats, and, we're, and we don't play sports, mm-hmm. you know. I'll I'll say that. So as things are continuing to get tense, a lot of people, a lot of women um, talk to me about how they feel like they have to have that gun. My my dad, I'll, I'll put him on blast. He is definitely a gun owner and does not play that. He he sends us pictures, a video of him at the range showing that he's going through the process and and all of that. Um, is gun ownership's got something? that you suggest is is it something that you generally um what would would uh what would push somebody toward based on one circumstance or another moving here from omaha was definitely a wake up call walking into all these businesses with signs that say we ban guns on the premises and i thought that's really a thing because in omaha i didn't know anybody who you know was carrying you know that but up here Guns are more a part of the fabric due to the, the big hunting culture uh, and people who live in rural areas. But I also think that you have a lot of people who are getting scared into it or they feel like if, um, if it goes down, it would be better to have it and not need it than to need it and not have it. And I kind of fell into that category. So I went and I was going to look for a handgun. And I think the thing that first raised my, um, my, my, uh, my nerves about it was going to a, a sporting goods store and there being none in the case. There, is no, there was no inventory. <laughs> um, 
And so I had to order mine online. And by the time it arrived, I the, the time that I had to wait to get it had long passed. Mm-hmm. So um, that kept me from committing a crime of passion. <laughs> you know, that, I suppose. You know, that I didn't buy it. And then an hour later, I'm, you know, plugging people in a shop, in a shopping center or something like that. Um, my point is that a lot of people here are already armed to the teeth. Um, I'll give you an example. When I went, to, when I finally had the license and I went to pick the pistol up, the guy that gave it to me said, are you planning to carry? And I said, no, this is for home protection. And he says, well, I would have recommended something a little bit bigger then. And I said, well, you weren't here. And... <laughs> And I ordered it online. This guy goes through and tells me about how what he carries on him, what he has in various rooms of the house. And he even has one for the shower because that's where you're most vulnerable. I said, man, where are you living? He, he is so scared he can't even go he to the shower, without shower without a shower. So you scared. <laughs> that, that's that's what it is. You speak to that culture. Well, well, first of all, something we we, we hadn't really talked about any um, music yet. I wanted to take the opportunity. You talked about that culture of fear better with it than without it or or whatever. Mm-hmm. Drake spoke to it. that. Free all of my niggas that they caught with it. R.I.P. My niggas that they caught without it. So I think that's definitely a part of. Uh, the, the culture, that fear of what if you don't. I, I also think it's interesting to note when we talk about hunting culture and, and all that sort of thing, I personally, I, I have no qualms with someone shooting, going out and being able to shoot deer or whatever. Being from Tennessee, I've, I've sat in front of many a bowl of, mm-hmm. of deer chili, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. I don't think you need an AR-15 to kill a deer. No. Or to or to shoot a raccoon, or or we don't have that type of wildlife no, here in the United no. States. Not the type you should be killing anyway. So you know when I go, in, I, I remember you know um, being here uh, er, my early days in Minnesota. I went into a pawn shop. I like to go in. I used to like to go into the pawn shops looking to see what video games are in there, just in case I can pick mm-hmm. up something I used to love and it's two dollars. Mm-hmm. I went into one um, way out east, far beyond east where you are. And this guy was like arguing with the pawn shop owner about the price that he's being offered for the gun that he brought in. And the pawn shop owner was like, well, you say, you say that you have X, Y, and Z. Where, where is it? So he goes to the car, walks back in with this duffel bag, and is like putting things together. Like, I, I don't even think I had seen a gun like that in real life before. I mean, it was mm. some sort of just way out of whack rifle mm-hmm. that a person just has. And I'm looking at it right there. Now, I don't think when it comes to this Knoxville shooting, we're talking about one of these big rifles. But, you know, all of that to say, again, like police brutality, the culture, the conversation, the discourse around it really has to change. We think there's a purpose for all of these weapons. That man you were talking to really thinks he needs all of those guns mm-hmm. in his house. What is he afraid of? Who is he afraid of? And when we perpetuate that, as we were saying, it lead, it, it trickles down into the kids having access, the kids even coming up in that culture where if they have a problem with somebody. Mm-hmm. We talk about uh, mental health these days, how all of that leads into it. Mm-hmm. So we have... Um, Folks down here in Knoxville at Austin East High School, you know, uh, uh, dealing with this now. Uh, yet another one of America's mass shootings. I hope that 
you know, and, and being having moved here from Knoxville, I can imagine how complicated they think this conversation should be because it is definitely of Second Amendment, you know, don't don't take my guns sort of area. So the the uh, the the death of people, you know, inclu- a police officer was injured, you know, in this, you know, they they back the blue, they love the blue so much. Why not for their sake? Mm-hmm. Do something about the, these these gun laws and these gun issues. True. State of Tennessee, the the governor loosening it all up. So, I mean, thoughts and prayers again. Because what 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 else what else can you do? The leaders the the leaders have proven to us that they're dedicated to um uh to 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 gun quo. culture and the status quo and yeah. the and the people that they need to keep happy for for all of that. So, um, well, we're averaging yeah. we're averaging a mass shooting a day at this point. Um, so. Uh, perhaps maybe something's finally going to break. I don't know. To to make some sort of musical spin here, um, again, Austin East High School, now for folks who don't know Knoxville, this school um, is in uh, a, a predominantly black part of town. It's a predominantly black school. There's some black history connected with Austin East High School. Austin High School and East High School actually used to be two schools and with desegregation and that sort of thing, they had to combine two schools. So that's how you get Austin East Mm. High School. That's a long story short. One of the really um, beautiful things about this school is that it's the only place in the city and, and likely in East Tennessee where as a high school student, you can study West African drumming. Mm. That is a part of the curriculum. And, and uh, as they say over there at that school, they, they keep, they uh, save it for the best students. Uh, most times the young men do the drumming and they teach um, the uh, correlative dancing mm. to the young women. And, and they have all these performances. When I was uh, down there with the Knoxville Symphony, uh, the music director, Aram Demergen, always made a point to sort of integrate what they were doing into what we were doing, especially when it came to uh, kids' concerts and, you know, those field trip concerts that people make uh, yeah, and, yeah. And, and go on to. Um, when I left the symphony to move to Minnesota, um, on their upcoming season even, uh, the Austin East High School uh, drum and dance, African Drum and Dance Ensemble was a part of the subscription series. So, you know, Aram had the foresight to not only put this group of uh, musicians in front of kids, but in front of the, the String of Pearls and the Fur Coats mm. as well, which, which I think is really incredible. So um, as we continue to, you know, again, send warm thoughts to everyone down there, I wanted to shine a positive light somewhere that I could on this story. And that's with the Austin East High School Drum and Dance Ensemble. So here's a little bit of, uh, of their music, of their, one of their performances to get us into uh, the final accidental for today. Last week when you gave a shout out to DMX, I kind of, I won't say glossed over it, but wanted to move on because I was hoping for the best. At that point, sure. he was in, in the hospital and I was hopeful that he would come out of this. Well, uh, as the world has learned, uh, DMX has 
passed away, Earl Simmons, his his government name, his his birth name, uh, first artist to see his first five albums go to number one on the Billboard chart. He was uh, foundational to uh, the Rough Riders record label and the whole crew and and the culture um, of of so called Rough Riding and, and all that sort of thing as it intersects uh, with hip hop. Um, a, a classic artist who um, is pivotal to American music and American history that um, I wanted to make sure that we named f- before we got out of the accidentals this week. Do you have any particular DMX memories or, or stories considering how broad uh, his reach was as an artist, despite being a hip-hop artist, you know? Yeah, you know, he was a good actor, too. That's so, right, yeah. that's yeah. right. Um, and it seemed like he had hit uh, a level that, um yeah I, I want to say public enemy you know public enemy you didn't really hear on the radio right but right uh you know uh i i guess you could also say that dmx was what they put in whenever uh like in the white shows the, the white tv shows or movies whenever they do a cutaway to something hard it's always a dmx tune underneath it you know like x going to give going to bring it to you or uh because or party and- up yeah. And and I think one thing to note, you know, on that line is that X had that instrument. When we talk about rap, when we talk right. about hip hop, it's more than just rhyming words. It's about having that voice. Opera singers, you know, have to have a have to be born with a certain gift and a certain voice. I think DMX had a very unique instrument in that regard, and I think that lent itself to the general aesthetic of his music. Right. So, like at karaoke, if I tried to do a DMX track, it <laughs> or, would it or, would not go me, over, or me either. It wouldn't you go know? over. Right, because it's 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 so legendary and and so unique. I don't want to spend long here um, because I, I know we're already running long, but, you know, to tie DMX in with what we're talking about with the arts and classical music, when I was in middle school, uh, you know, first uh, starting to get into band, that that was when, you know, DMX was really on the radio, really playing the big shows. So we all just knew his name and, and knew his music and, and knew his sounds. One of the tunes that I'm sure everyone sort of um, thinks about when they think of DMX is the Rough Riders anthem. Sure. I think that piece is significant because on our instruments with my bassoon, with, you know, all of our friends learned, we all know four notes. (laughs) We learned Hey Diddle Diddle or whatever the white stuff was in the book. But we could also play that Rough Riders theme anthem because it was just those particular notes. (laughs) What if, you know, somewhere in the country at that point, there was a beginning band director who wrote that out or, or whatever and made that connection with his students and got his kids more engaged with this instrument that they're holding than they would otherwise with, with something else. So, you know, when I think about DMX, there's, there's all sorts of tunes and all sorts of stories we can get into. I want to highlight the Rough Riders anthem, not only as um, a foundational work in his catalog um, and, and in the culture that he built and represents, but as something that connected to so many folks like me who are just trying to learn an instrument and, and on our so-called classical journey. So here's a little bit of that Rough Riders anthem as we move into this second movement. Stop, no. Stop. 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 
try. Niggas wanna lie. Then niggas wonder why. Niggas wanna die. All I know is pain. All I feel is pain. How can I maintain with that shit on my Scott off the mic when we were reminiscing about DMX, you were talking about some of the different sound effects that DMX would make with his instrument, with his voice. Mm -hmm. uh, but folks will remember there would be a lot of barking and a lot of other uh, other sounds, you know, in you know, in, in in his music. Maybe they didn't necessarily, you know, speak to the uh, the message. You know, weren't a part of the lyrics, but it's the were aesthetic. a part of the feel, the the, the aesthetic. And I think um, you know that translates beyond hip hop as well into something you've brought in this week, right? Well, let's not uh, under let's not take for granted the uh, the various calls and responses that happen in rap and hip hop music. Oh uh, yeah, hey! there, there's a whole yeah, there's a whole uh, ad lib track, you know, like sure. you, <laughs> okay. you're you're playing the thing and then reacting to your own track. <laughs> right. And and then reacting off of people's right. response to that. So right. um, and DMX certainly, you know, I I can't make his sounds i'm not even going to try right you know what i'm talking about the, Every, the, the world knows just yeah. like uh you know tom waits does it too and uh this past week i was listening to uh don upshaw what an instrument um now who is don upshaw don upshaw is a soprano who was born in nashville tennessee uh as far as i'm concerned every single recording that i have heard her do it becomes the benchmark recording it becomes mm -hmm. the you know the one that i always seek out and the ones that i point people to when they're looking for a suggestion yeah and joseph cantaloupe's songs of the Auvergne is one where gibberish and nonsense singing comes into play and i think that that speaks to how oftentimes the uh the melody and what you, what you do with the sound, with your voice, is more important than the words, don't you think? Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely think uh, in some of my favorite songs, you have what I call the, the musical cry or the musical breakdown where the lyric for 16 bars is only ooh or ah or something else. Mm -hmm. or, but mm -hmm. what's being put forward, we talked about this in I Care by Beyonce, it's it's painting the picture the musical picture of being in your bedroom tossing and turning in the middle of your living room floor yeah. driving in traffic just yeah. break breaking down so yeah i i definitely agree and i think uh that's that's interesting uh to explore uh, in all music i think it's interesting that you found a way to connect it to western classical here well also let's keep in mind that um I don't understand all of the rap lyrics unless I've got them in front of me. So oftentimes that just sounds like they're, hey. In the, in the same way that no person that I have ever met knows all of the instrumentation in a score as they're listening to a symphony, right? But we don't sideline that. You're reminding me of my, my pin tweet right now. You know, we, we, we love to say, well, I don't understand rap. So, okay, but you don't understand the Beethoven either. You just think you do. So, but anyway, you know, that, that, that's my point there. But, but anyway, thanks for, um, uh, bringing that in, uh, what what is what is this piece again? Songs of the Auvergne. Songs of the Auvergne. It's a region in France. You know, just think like uh, rolling hills and idyllic mountain landscapes. You know, shepherds and you know, no troubles.
talk about the Auvergne and, and these idyllic pastoral pictures, right? Mm-hmm. For me growing up, those were images that I only saw, at least in real life, when it came time for the family road trips. So when uh, I think okay. about the Auvergne, maybe the American South Auvergne, the past, the pastoral South in the less violent way that, you know, Nina Simone once said the pastoral South, she was talking about something else just, just for the folks who are mm-hmm. really down with the music. But anyway, when I, when I think about a pastoral South in a, in a light way, as you were talking about with the Auvergne and all of those childhood uh, uh, family trips, I think about the artist Anita Baker. Now, that is not why I brought her in today. I'd just like to show you that I'm good at my segues (laughs) and making everything connect. Are y'all taking notes, radio hosts out there? Look at it. (laughs) Anyway. No. uh, So back to DMX quickly. So one thing that I saw was that uh, Beyonce and Jay-Z, again, Beyonce is always here to do something good for the people. They bought all of DMX's masters and are giving them to the kids. Cool. So that they can benefit from all that. They don't have to worry about the cool. record labels and, and X, Y, and Z. That is a, you know, that conversation is is more and more and more important every day because we're, we're seeing how it manifests. Mm. The artist Anita Baker, an artist, I, I, I went through the time talking about the family trips. The connection there is that when we would go on family trips, my mom needs to be able to go to sleep because she does not want to be awake in the car for very long. Anita Baker puts her in her mode, puts her in her mood. And so before we really get out of town good, my mom is asleep, but we have an Anita Baker album to enjoy. I, I, and I don't even say that jokingly because when I think about her music and uh, her aesthetic, I just get so m- m- many of those feels from child, just the nostalgia there. Anyway, so Anita Baker, you know, with all of the hits, with all of the people that she has impacted with her music, is fighting for her own masters. And uh, I have an article here. Let me uh, pull this up quickly. I'm reading from Essence. The title is Anita Baker asks fans to stop streaming her music in efforts to retrieve her masters. Despite a legendary catalog of music that includes five platinum selling albums, R&B icon Anita Baker is now asking fans to halt the purchase and streaming of her music. In a host of tweets, Baker disclosed a battle she's currently embroidered in with her label, commenting on how she's miraculously outlived her artist contracts, the Detroit native pointing out that her rightfully owned masters are still not in her possession. So when we talk about Scott, don't stream it, don't buy it. She's saying that the money is not going to me. Mm-hmm. We need to fix this mm-hmm. if y'all are really my fans. if you're, I don't know if you were in on this news. I forget if we talked about it on Triloquy. Um, Dave Chappelle had something similar going on. He asked folks not to stream the Chappelle show on one of the things, and, and they got that worked out. So mm. that's what we're dealing with here um, with Anita Baker, it breaks my heart because there's Anita Baker in my phone because, again, nostalgia and sometimes going back to it in the rough week we've, we've had, I found myself um, on some Anita Baker. But now I'm like, well, damn, and should should I not? You know, what, what, what's going on? What, what, what do you think about that whole part of the conversation? We, we've talked about what it means to own your music. For folks who don't know, the masters are like your originals, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, of, of, your, uh, of your music. So we can go into the ownership conversation. But really now we're talking about the people supporting a cause more than they're supporting their desire to get from you what they want. What do you, what do you think about that part of it? First off, 
uh, it's an interesting point that she brought up that she outlived the contract. Yeah. That makes me wonder how long uh, did they think she was going to live? I mean, did they and write it? And that's some tea as well. They so thought that, she would be out of here. That's what I'm wondering. Right, right. right. And so now if uh, she were to get any money from spins on a streaming service or a purchase on iTunes or whatever, she's not seeing any of that, huh? She's not seeing an, uh, enough of it, you know, for it, whatever she's seeing or isn't seeing. She's, her point is don't stream it, right. you know, and, until I get my stuff together. D- do it's, you, I mean... It seems to me that she's probably got enough clout with the climate that we have now that I think that she could probably get this resolved pretty quickly, don't you? I hope so. I hope so. This this has been going on for a little minute, though. The article oh, I'm reading it? from is uh, March 15th. So I, I think as we're recording this, we're we're still in a, a little bit of little bit of a brawl. But I, I'm I'm bringing in um, Anita Baker for the second movement for me this week again because when I was thinking about what Beyonce and Jay Z did for the kids and the family of DMX mm. as far as masters, when I just noticed that I found myself back in my mind on those family trips in my earbuds here in my apartment listening to Anita Baker that sort of cross-pollination you know was an interesting um intersection and I thought I would you know hmm. see what you see what you think about that you know Waits you bring up the name Waits all the time Tom Waits if if he got on uh, TV got on the internet and said they're not doing me right don't stream any of my stuff would you not could that already not? that already happened. Oh, that, yeah, that yeah. was a thing. He had something happen. Yeah, like half of his catalog was uh, uh, something with a former manager that he was bilked out of eighty percent of his earnings for that. So, yeah. so did you so, stop streaming? <laughs> there, um, that, that's, that's my question. Did you it, stop streaming? All of it was resolved before streaming services even came about. So, uh, all, all, would, would all right? Well, then hypothetically, would would you have? Would you have been like, I'm with you, Mr. Waits? I'm not going to, you know. I would say yes, and I'll go over and I'll just put the CD in the CD player because I, I own that media. I, I guess that's the important part about owning the media, huh? I oh, own see, the media. Also, you, uh, you, own, you understand ownership there, huh? I understand that ownership. <laughs> and plus, right. I'll probably go and spend the money to get them on LP now, too, since I've got a good record player. So, yeah, Tom wins. Well, concerning Anita Baker. Anita wins. What 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 do we think? I, I suppose we aren't going to put her on the triloquy tracks. We aren't going to encourage people to stream, but mm, we we can we can we can point. put a little bit here just to remind the people. So hopefully you own your Anita Baker in the way that my parents, especially my mom, own the Anita Baker. Even Scott, as I think about the song that I want to share, giving you the best that I got, I feel like I got to get into my smooth voice to for <laughs> promote it. You know, again for Go the ahead. people listening, imagine so yeah, and I'll add to this for the family trips it's always late at night because my dad also wanted the kids to sleep and he felt like it would be easier for us to sleep and to you know leave him alone as he's driving if we did overnight Uh, my dad also worked an overnight job so that kind of ran in line with it so imagine it's late at night you know just a star filled sky out there in the middle of nowhere you have no idea where you are all you know is that your cd player is right there and you know that when you press one you're hear the smooth sounds of a woman who's going to let you know that not only is it all right, but she's giving you the best that she's got. Here's giving you the best that I got, a legendary composition by the great Anita Baker. Ain't there something I can give in exchange for everything you give to me? Read my mind, you make me feel just like 
Once again, Urging Kang is a, a violinist, uh, lived in Los Angeles uh, for much in, uh, much of her life, is now based in Fayetteville, Arkansas, in Northwest Arkansas, um, a University of Arkansas violin professor um, who famously, you know, in an effort to learn more about Arkansas and um, her then new home, uh, some of the local composers, local art, um, local history. Of course, Scott, as we know, Florence Price is a huge name, of course, when we talk about women composers and African. American composers, but Arkansas composers as, a, mm, as an mm-hmm. Arkansas native. Mm-hmm. Chicago also claims her as well, but you know we, we really attribute her home to Arkansas. So Urging Kane talks about her journey um, learning about uh, Florence Price being um, behind the premiere recording of her violin concerto, how uh, that concerto was received um, over across seas and uh, lots in between. But to get us uh, into my conversation with Urging Kang, here's a little bit of her recording of Florence Price's uh, violin concerto. So hope you enjoy this. Arkansas, to me, when I first took this job at University of Arkansas, uh, obviously the the mission of teaching was what brought me here. But to be honest, I saw it as sort of an incomplete um, bargain or exchange. Um, I sort of thought, well, I'm moving for a more stable job, but I'm also giving up the kind of dynamic excitement of living in a city and in and all the things that might come with it right um so i moved here in 2007 pre-housing crisis Mm -hmm. but it was also a much smaller city in some ways uh back then um within the last 14 years i've seen a huge um trajectory for growth which i think would not have been possible if i had been living in an already established city like new york or la and so that was something i did not anticipate However, when I first arrived, um, you flew into XNA, Garrett. So, so you know, mm-hmm. when you fly in, it's a small regional airport. Yep. It takes no time <laughs> to check out. Um, I think even before the airport expansion, maybe there were three or four terminals. Mm-hmm. I, you know, this was, of course, pre-COVID. And, and so the idea of traffic, yeah, even in an airport, to me, uh, it, was, it was very quaint. And I hope I don't sound too sort of, um, uh, I don't know, uh, like I'm sort of patting the town on, on its oh, head no, by yeah. saying that. <laughs> yeah. But um, I just thought, wow, I I feel like this is what the 1950s might have been like in L.A. <laughs> or, you know, just like something from a different time. And, and you know, I'm just going to be real. It, it seemed very white. Yeah. And it's it still is very white. Um, and so that 
to me, um, I think, you know, being a racial minority, I, I'm not unaccustomed to being in majority white spaces, but I wasn't accustomed to, I think, the percentage uh, combined with the small town feel, combined with my perceptions of being in the South and historically knowing the restrictions and the and the racial history of Jim Crow and slavery, um, I brought all of those stereotypes and, and biases. And so I think some were self-fulfilling prophecies and uh, having the benefit of living here 14 years, I've seen also what has been possible. So, um, you know, I think the biggest thing, Garrett, is just there is uh, an interest to create a rich cultural um, tapestry here. And I think some of it is very much looking towards large cities, but mm -hmm. I think there is interestingly also an interest to explore and really uh, celebrate in some ways what local creatives would consider the quintessential Arkansan cultural um, spirit, which, yeah. I mean, every artist has a different idea of what that means. And of course, um, you know, this ties into a much larger idea of what is the American identity, you know, to talk about what is the Arkansan identity, maybe you also have to kind of funnel it larger and talk about what the American identity is. And, you know, America is very much a country of immigrants, a country of a lot of people moving um, to seek opportunities, um, to, to quest as artists mm -hmm. for uh, a home, uh, a place where they can economically feel liberated and a place where they can also feel culturally welcomed. And I think um, it's very much in the American spirit in some ways to constantly search for that and to move in search of that um, as to being, as, as opposed to necessarily being rooted in your hometown of birth for your entire life. Right. Uh, and so Ar Arkansas, um, especially the, the Northwest Arkansas area where I'm more familiar, mm -hmm. um, is very much a city, I think, of transplants. I think one of the connecting conversations, even amongst artists, is where did you practice art first? What brought you here? Um, what will make you feel at home? What are the things that you hope for? And I think um, many of the cultural arts organizations in the state of Arkansas and also within this area is very much invested in I would almost say propping up that Arkansan pride, but also, again, um, exploring this question of what is quintessentially Arkansan. Yeah. And, it, you know, with with your uh, describing Arkansas, specifically Northwest Arkansas, as this place of uh, development and discovery, that must impact your approach to teaching um, our Arkansan violinists. Oh, yes. I, I think what has been interesting for me, uh, Garrett, is, you know, at this sort of intersection in our lives, um, still in the middle of the pandemic, you know, still dealing with, you know, the events of last summer, which honestly, um, growing up in LA, I, I dealt with Rodney King. Right, and, 92, yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. And and so I, I'm still processing that. And then, you know, here I was sort of in lockdown and reading about George Floyd and, and seeing all the protests across the country. Um, uh, all of that just to say, I'm still processing what my relationship to classical music is because so much of classical music, as you know, in my in my earlier training and maybe even still today, deals with sort of looking with a very rose-colored uh, mm -hmm. pair of glasses towards history and also a very selective view of history. And so I will be the first one to admit as an immigrant, 
I subconsciously and consciously try to always assess my success um, in life and as and as, as an artist based on my perceived proximity to whiteness, mm. both in mm. terms of classical music, but also in society. And so I was very much drawn to the very traditional definitions of prestige. Did I achieve X? Did I go to school Y? Did I have this on my resume? And very much seeking the affirmation of, of those gatekeepers. So to come back to your question of Arkansan violinists, classical music is not a huge uh, cultural, historical um, product here, as you can imagine. If anything, bluegrass and fiddling, and if anything, just sort of the exact opposite of what classical music traditionally tries to uphold, um, elitism and um, wealth and uh, exclusivity, mm-hmm. um, and certainly whiteness, but a, a a, a white European kind of whiteness, um, especially string music has an aristocratic background as well, playing mm-hmm. for the kings and queens and the monarchs in, in courts. So, uh, and also often, of course, historically based in patronage, you know, and, and so all of that to say there is a divide for sure, where many of the students will say, um, I appreciate classical and that's how it's being taught. But in my downtime, I'll always play and they'll fill in the blank with mm-hmm. something that's not non-classical. And also, when they when they don't even have their instruments, they will not listen to classical at all either. Um, I think a survey that was done, uh, which is still relevant, is classical music still remains to be the lowest percentage of genres of styles that college students will listen to. Um, and it's it's associated with being snooty. And I think... Yeah. You know, there was a certain point at which classical music celebrated that, and it was sort of a shorthand for um, social standing and class right, for, right. for some people. And so I really do think it's classical music's doing. But the other side to that is that, um, you know, many, many Arkansan violinists, for example, um, they they don't want to buy that, you know, they uh, and they don't buy it. And yeah. so we are in a, well, I am in an interesting situation where, the curricula that I was given as a student is the one that I feel best equipped to pass on because that's what I have spent most of my time pursuing and most of my time being told was the the path to success. And the path to su- success also just in practical terms, meaning how do you get a job in our yeah. profession? <laughs> right. um, and yet I am at a point with especially my Florence Price work where I just find myself thinking about ways to subtly disrupt the system, basically. I mean, it's, it would be so, I suppose, alluring to just feel like I could burn the house down, you know, single-handedly. But we all work in institutions with parameters and compromises and accommodations that we have to make. And I think we all, at the end, have to look in the mirror and sort of say, well, what are some things that I'm willing to let slide for now? What are some things that are non-negotiables for me enough that, you know, uh, I would be willing to lose my job over issue X or value X? And and so I think those are the internal introspective questions. Um, and of course, you know, these things have um, many layers, right? Because there is the 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 bureaucracy of a university, for a state university, there's also sta- state mandates, federal mandates. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, there are definitely lots of limitations, but I am encouraged by sort of the grassroots and local efforts to at least 
bring this to to the fore as an issue. And um, I think the one great thing, or there are many great things, but one of the great things that I have been able to explore in the last few years is to develop, I think, a, a more close relationship with students that, again, may not be traditional. I, my violin lessons, for example, always held the teacher at a very distant um, and high pedestal. Oh, yeah. And so <laughs> even a question like asking my teacher, you know, where do you go to shop for your groceries or how are your children doing seemed like I was crossing a line. Um, it was just about violin. So violin was very much the center of the relationship. And I feel like I'm able now to decenter that and make the person, you know, the center of the relationship where we talk about violin, but I still have a chance to honor these students as people first, not as violinists first. Um, And so I I learned so much, Garrett, about what they like, what they don't like. And I'm sure there are still obviously hierarchical lines that we have have to respect, but I do appreciate the honesty of students where I remember when I first heard from a student, I really don't like this kind of music, but I respect our time and I respect that classical violin is the only degree that I can get at this point if I want to continue my study on violin. Mm -hmm. And so I... I realized that I will need to do a bit of translation. What we take in the lesson, I'll take with me, but I may not want to perform Mozart, you know, after I graduate. <laughs> and I remember in the beginning, I, I was very ambivalent because I, I felt like my efforts were, were not appreciated and that it didn't have longstanding value because in any kind of translation, there's, there's some loss Uh, But then also appreciating the fact that I finally was able to achieve a kind of teacher-student relationship where a student could actually say this to me without fear or anxiety. And so all of this just to say, I, I wonder sometimes, it's hard to say, I wonder sometimes if I were in LA and I did have, I don't know, almost the, the history and the resources of classical music in its most traditional forms, if I could not explore these kinds of conversations and relationships, because there would be so much more institutional and historical baggage in a way. Um, I mean, I haven't been in LA, so I, I may be misrepresenting what's going on with programming and all the sort of curricular efforts. But I think with any kind of established city, what we trade for that, um, pool of opportunities and resources, we give up in sort of the lightness of being able to make quick changes, quick mm-hmm. and immediate changes. So, um, so, so yes, yeah, Garrett, all, all this just to say, I think living in Arkansas has its pluses and has its minuses, just like um, any place, I suppose. Yeah. And as a graduate myself of USC, I don't think you're uh, mischaracterizing L.A. Uh, at all. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, you mentioned something, you know, classical music, so-called classical music's proximity to whiteness. And in this past year, we talk about all of the uh, difficult conversations, the so-called difficult conversations. One of the ones that um, I think that we aren't yet exploring are found in that statement, classical music's proximity to whiteness. 
Is that why we celebrate Florence Price? Do we celebrate a Black woman who has achieved greatness, or do we celebrate a Black woman who achieved that proximity to whiteness? Yeah, that is a complex question, Garrett. I think, I think like all composers, I would like to believe that what attracts performers and scholars and historians to Florence Price varies depending on the subconscious agendas and values that they already hold. Um, the way in which I, I will just speak about myself t- as, a, as a starting point, uh, I, have ne- I had never heard of Florence Price. The reasons why I first became interested in Florence Price was because I was trying to honor Arkansan history. Mm. Uh, as someone who was always searching for home, I very much resisted calling myself an Arkansan. And I still don't know when someone says, for example, where are you from? I still don't know how to answer that question, not only because of the implications of, well, you don't really belong here, so what Asian country are you really from? I mean, that's a totally different area, but I also wouldn't know how to answer that question simply because I traveled around quite a bit as a child and even as a young adult. And so if we're talking about home as a duration in a community, um, I'm not exactly sure how to answer that question. If we're also talking about a feeling of loyalty or pride, I also am not sure because I've equally enjoyed all of my times in different cities and have very special memories that are not apples to apples. And, And so I always come back to how do people answer this question and what do they use as their barometer to answer this question? And so I found it interesting that I, simply because I still have family in LA, I still find myself saying LA as the easy answer. But I do now, and maybe from a few years ago, started to think about, well, now I've lived in Arkansas probably duration-wise the longest. Mm -hmm. And now I'm approaching a duration that's even longer than when I grew up in LA. And so does that now mean that home will shift from LA to Fayetteville, Arkansas, I'm not sure. And so one of the sub things that came out of that thought uh, bubble was, well, then I should at least know more about Arkansas regional history. Um, I don't know if your listeners, Garrett, um, uh, were products of public education, but as you know, with a lot of state public education, the curricula can vary widely. And depending on states, certain history programs, for example, will accentuate different parts of the state. So I have friends in Texas, for example, who will spend a lot more time on the Texas Revolution than people in California will. And maybe we spend more time on the gold rush, for example. Um, And so I realized I did not know much about Arkansas. Um, I mean, of course, maybe it's just I wasn't paying attention. (laughs) Maybe in history class, I'm not sure. But I remember thinking, I don't think I can actually recall anything extremely state-specific. And so when my colleague was um, uh, planning for this Florence Price Symposium at the University of Arkansas, I, I became interested to know more about her life as a contemporary and, and a colleague and as a friend of William Grant Still, also because of my own personal obligations that I felt as a person to understand and grow a relationship with Arkansan history. Also, my sense of responsibility as a teacher and as a musician to know the canon 
better. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so it very much started from a personal place, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And I realized that, or at least my sense is that starting from maybe a year or two ago, this um, conversation around Florence Price has also expanded to be a symbol about classical music's um, exclusivity and its internal racism. Yeah. And so I actually am, to be honest, still surprised that my sort of, in some ways, very small conception of Florence Price as a local Arkansan figure, and also, of course, Chicago claims uh, Florence Price as well, yep. um, has expanded out to be such a, a wide and versatile symbol in a way, you know, um, for, for a larger conversation. So I am assuming, based on not, not much evidence or surveying, that part of Florence Price's um, allure, the, 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 the conversations around Florence Price is multi-pronged. And that Arkansans, for example, will have a very specific, perhaps very regional relationship to Florence Price. And of course, because I spend most of my time here living and working, I find that a lot of the conversations that happen locally are slightly different than the conversations I have nationally. Um, it just as a very simple delineation, I find that people in Arkansas will immediately attach a sense of self-pride. They'll, they will kind of couch it as, ah, one of us has made it. Mm-hmm. One mm-hmm. of us is being talked about outside of Arkansas. It's not just people in Little Rock, not just people in the university who are talking about her, but my goodness, there are people internationally programming her. There are people, so it somehow, I guess, legitimizes in their minds um, a figure that they claim as their own, making it out in the world. And so it's extremely powerful in terms of what that also implies for themselves being seen. Um, I even had a woman who said, I never learned about this when I was a child. And even knowing about it now late in my life empowers me to know that one of us made it. Yeah. Um, and, and of course, nationally, the conversations are very much geared towards, I never knew this woman existed. Um, some people, I think performers, for example, are very fascinated by the the mixture, I think, of the styles that she represents. And I think historically it's also an interesting time because it was also around this time of, uh, like, for example, I'm curious, was Price's music even in her time considered old-fashioned? Because, for example, her violin concerto very much harkens to the past of this grand violin tradition, violin concerto tradition, when there was also this idea of being very sparse and like cerebral and intellectual. And I don't know, I I hate to use these terms, but it's historical, sort of this masculine kind of music where it's like, uh, and when there's any kind of beautiful lyricism, that was sort of falling out of fashion. And and so I I also wonder if there were a lot of other conversations that were happening um, during her time. But all of that just to say, now in 2021, for people who are discovering her for the first time, I think the sort of expansive lyricism is is in some ways very accessible in the best sense of the word because yeah. it's not like um, a Schoenberg piece or or, or something that's uh, just so so cerebral um, and in some ways inaccessible. 
Um, so all of that, just to say, Garrett, I think that uh, the beauty of all of this is that there are many ways to get to know Florence Price. And I think there are many ways to advocate for Florence Price. And I'm just so grateful that people are talking about her and are programming her. Yeah, I have to admit to you that, you know, again, something that you mentioned earlier, that question of where are you from? I've had a I won't say a difficult time, but I, I often find myself doing mental gymnastics when, you know, I meet Asians and Asian Americans, because when I ask, where are you from? I'm asking, what what city are you based in? Or, or you yes. know, like I, I found myself having to frame my question so it doesn't seem like I'm asking that. For, for example, if we were at a bar, I would ask you, so are you originally from Fayetteville? Or, you know, because <laughs> that, that, that is difficult. And, and I'm, I appreciate your uh, naming that. To that, you know, all of the places that you've been around the world and all of the audiences that um, you've shared Florence Price's um, music with, I wonder if um, a sense of home, even if it's, you know, uh, you know, uh, how, how can I say, maybe uh how can I say you, you you talk about you know living in Arkansas longer at this point than l a and and other places when you have performed this work, for example, with the uh, Janacek Philharmonic, you know, was there a sense of home in your performance or your perspective did did you feel like you were sharing home with with these folks way over in the Czech Republic? Yes, um when I so when I recorded this in the Czech Republic, that was 2017, 2018 which seems very recent, but as I'm sure all of our, your listeners will attest, so much has happened in the last oh, yeah. year and two. And so, I mean, it really seems like it was a decade ago or even a generation ago. And, you know, I, I say this without criticism, but when I recorded this in, in the Czech Republic, the reception was not warm. Hmm. The, the reception was very much, uh, and I think we all do this, and so that's why I say, I'll say this clinically without a sense of, berating or criticism, we tend to latch onto what we already know. So for, and we do this all the time. Oh, this sounds like uh, this other song that I know, or this actually sounds like uh, something from a movie that I saw or, mm -hmm. or, and, and I find that for example, a lot of um, uh, my students experiences with classical music is through cinema. And so the, the biggest thing and the most common answer if you play a Mahler symphony for the first time for them or, um, oh, I don't know, a Dvorak symphony, right. the first thing is, oh, it sounds like Jaws. <laughs> or, yeah, you know, or it sounds, and I, I guess that's a really dated, you know, film too, but it sounds like Pirates of the Caribbean or, mm -hmm. or, or something. And so they'll definitely latch onto these film composers who, of course, also owe a lot to Wagner or Dvorak or, you know, Tchaikovsky. And so that, uh, when I was recording these concertos, that was a similar reception of these musicians. Oh, this is basically a second-rate version of mm. fill in the blank. A second-rate version of uh, Tchaikovsky, a second-rate version of Dvorak. And so, for example, there were some musicians who were kind of playing parts of the Tchaikovsky violin concerto when they were on break. Um, and I don't know if that was just uh, these musicians just kind of doodling around, so to speak, you know, but I did sense a little bit of resistance. I did sense a bit of, um, what is this music? I did sense a bit of, uh, novelty, but the novelty sometimes, uh, was not met with 
an open curiosity, but more of a closed judgment about, is this really worth recording? And so to be honest with you, I wasn't surprised because I think, I think this is one of classical music's um, plagues is it's um, inability sometimes to incorporate living composers and, and living music and, and, and the living part is also um, underrepresented and historically um, overlooked composers. So for example, even Florence Price no longer being living, the fact that mm -hmm. it has come to the fore to me makes it contemporary. And, and how do we integrate new knowledge with old knowledge? I think classical music often tends to be very dismissive and automatically skeptical of new knowledge and it prizes old knowledge. And so what we end up doing is replicating these problematic old structures in the service of trying, I suppose, to preserve a tradition. And, and so I think these critical discussions of, okay, you know, let's preserve a tradition and our connection to history. No one here is trying to say, let's just uh, bomb the whole house, so to speak. Uh, <laughs> Not most I mean, of us anyway. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Some of us are, and, and I yeah. respect that. And I understand that. I was even thinking about your question the other day that you posed, Garrett, you know, have you ever thought about breaking up with classical music? Oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> and thinking about, well, what kind of breakup are we talking about? Are we talking about a, I never want to see you again for the rest of my life kind of breakup or That's good like point, a, yeah. like uh, let's break up, but let's still have coffee like once a year or we'll yep. still send holiday cards. Uh, and you know, I still wish the best for you. Or is it a breakup? Like, well, let's just stay friends. But, yeah. you know, and, and so I, I just thought, well, what, what would a breakup with classical music for me mean? And so I definitely respect those who basically have the breakup where they sort of are like, I never want to see you again for the rest of my life kind of mm -hmm. breakup. Um, but uh, all, I've, I've forgotten now my train of thought, Garrett. But um, <laughs> <laughs> all of this just to say that um, I think it's a very complex question about what, it, what does it mean to preserve a tradition when it has values that are problematic and, and values that I would claim, you know, they don't serve modern society. And, and so, you know, when, when we're talking about preservation, is it 100% or 0%? I mean, is there room for evolution? And I think obviously, if the answer is yes, there are a lot of different opinions on what that evolution would look like. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and one of my personal quandaries has been, as I say, this idea of how do we integrate new knowledge with old knowledge? And how do we integrate it, especially when we're dealing with the language that is already old? Um, so I do see sometimes this desperation for classical music to hang on to I don't know, a nostalgia, a feeling, a set of values, which it, it doesn't exist anymore. And so for some people's minds, I suppose that is more of a motivator than to, to uphold it, right? Because it's no longer here. Um, while I also think, um, do we still want to be, whether, whether we say it like this or not, replicating systems of oppression? Right. Right. Are we really okay with that in, in the name of history, in the name of connecting to a past that's no longer here? Um, so I, 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 still, I still battle through it. And I think um, 
teaching is is a wonderful way to um, have access to these conversations that you know the Gen Z the Gen Zers are having now, and the Gen Zers are actively questing in terms of upholding their own musical identities. Um, and, and, you know, and in addition to paying attention to what the uh, up and coming generations are doing and talking about, you know, my my dissonance is, yes, this uh, history of these constructs are problematic. And folks like my mother see a photo of Florence Price and feel seen and feel some sort of in engagement, you know, um, the question of is this music worth recording? Is this just novel? I think, you know, the the uh, spirit of that question has changed over recent years. You know, five years ago, uh, the response to that question would be very different than today. If we're asking, is Florence Price's music worth recording? Um, what's been your response to um, this contemporary racial awakening, considering the legwork you've put into the music of Florence Price? I also want to pull in your work with the uh, Fort Smith Symphony. I, I actually learned that today in doing research. I didn't know that you were part of that organization. I've loved them forever for the attention that they paid to Black music, Florence Price, William Grant Still, um, et cetera. Well, so yeah, so what's your response to everyone's interest in this all of a sudden, considering the the work that you've been putting into this sort of music for years now. I think it's great, Garrett. And to be honest with you, I had severe imposter syndrome recording the concertos, but I basically came around to confront my own idea of what a recording represents. And I think in that regard, also constantly and personally going through this butting of heads of old knowledge, knowledge and training that I received and values that I received with values that shape me today by by living here and, and thinking about how my classical art can continue to have an impact and mm-hmm. and 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 express values and ideas that are important to me. Um, I started this project just as Fort Smith uh, was planning their multi-year plan of recording all of what William Grant Still and all of Florence Price with the idea, again, of uh, sort of telling an Arkansan story in a way. And I think that's kind of this idea that I, I keep coming back to while living and working here is it's possible to have classical music that is also distinctly Arkansan. Mm-hmm. And I would not have necessarily thought that when I was not living here. And I think uh, when I wasn't living here, the way that I would have interpreted that statement would have been a euphemism for a kind of uh, lowering of standards Right. When people talk about, well, it can exist on Arkansan terms. Well, it it sounds like a euphemism, but it's really not. It's talking about celebration of distinct identities and um, a knowing of a community that only happens when you're not a tourist, when you actually live and work here. Um, and I think there has been a lot of interest going back to your first question about what is it like to be an artist in Arkansas. I think there is very much an exploration of the kind of art that comes through the slow work of being and living here, as opposed to just being a parachuting artist. Although I think that's also great as well when you have a megastar who goes on tour and visits all the major cities and has kind of a stop in Fayetteville before they go on to Dallas or or someplace else. Um, But 
my, my hope was always that this recording would be a reference recording and that it would inspire others to record their own versions mm. um, and their own uh, ideas and their own artistic values that could be expressed through Florence Price. And also, of course, then also champion Florence Price. I think, you know, there hasn't really been enough saturation. Uh, I think I would love to see hundreds and thousands of more recordings of the Florence Price symphonies and, and concertos. Um, and certainly I, I feel like there's a lot more performances and programming of it. But um, I mean, the work is, is just kind of getting off the ground in, yeah. in, in, my, in my eyes. Um, I, I still um, grapple with, I think, perceptions that um, it's not my place maybe to be upholding this music. Um, one of the first interviews I had actually about the album with the violin concertos was pretty shocking for me. I was not expecting it where the the radio host actually said, uh, why you? And, mm. and basically not someone more famous, you know? Um, <laughs> and, and so it was a knock on basically my abilities as an artist. And then somewhere uh, more halfway into the conversation, it was then... Hmm, here we, I mean, the radio host didn't say it in so many words, but the implication was, here's an Asian woman performing black music. What's going on there? And so the first part of the conversation was very much, okay, you're kind of a nobody artistically. And then the second part is um, you're appropriating somewhat a, a different culture's music. And so I thought, wow, I appreciate these questions. Um, I just wasn't ready for it. <laughs> uh, and, and so basically I said, listen, uh, I have no um, misconceptions about the fact that I'm not, name your, mega, name your favorite megastar, you know, I'm not a household name as a violinist and I'm okay with that. I'm at a point where, you know, I'm not, I was never a child prodigy. I, I just really enjoyed the sound of the violin and I, I kind of enjoy sometimes the slow work that that violin, acoustic violin takes me. And I enjoy teaching and I enjoy making music on my own terms. And right now I'm able to do that. And so I'm, and I'm very happy to have this access to Florence Price's manuscripts. And it was just a personal project for me to, to find home. And, and it was, maybe that sounds very self-centered, but that was my goal. I wasn't looking for fame. I wasn't looking for attention or praise like, oh, look at me. I, I'm so special. I, I play violin so well and um, I'm, I'm playing these, these concertos. And so um, I, I don't, I, the only answer that I can say as to why me was no one else thought of doing it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, the, a megastar didn't think to do it, you know. Um, and then the second part, I think, of the cultural appropriation, I think, is a lot more complex um, but in some ways, my answer is the same, which is, uh, I, I understand it's not always about intent, but I, in my mind, I was champion, championing a regional Arkansan artist. Uh, and that's not to deny Florence Price's race. That's not to deny her difficulties. Um, but my, again, my singular and initial focus was, hey, this is a really cool piece of Arkansan history. And also, as a woman, I, I thought it's really cool that um, as a single woman, as sorry, single mother, um, she 
was tireless in her efforts to continue to compose with financial difficulties, with the chaotic historical times, living in fear and anxiety, yeah. uh, knowing historically how segregated society was. Um, I, I just, I'm inspired by that story. And I felt very much strengthened and encouraged by a historical figure. And, and so I, I was very honest and said, I, you know, I, I had not taken the time um, to, to think about all of these cultural appropriation possibilities. For me, it was, it was like I was saying in the beginning, Garrett, I, I, sometimes I solve problems just by washing dishes, you know? <laughs> and, and so yeah. for me, I was just trying to make a recording. I wasn't necessarily trying to make a big statement, and I certainly wasn't trying to uh, search or ask for fame or attention. Uh, but I think it's amazing that it's happened, not because of what it's done for me, but because of all of the conversations that it's been able to inspire. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And for, for what it's worth, I have definitely spent a lot of time thinking about the issue of cultural appropriation, especially as it applies to this recording. But from my perspective, you know, my ultimate gratitude is that the recordings exist. For me, especially in this case, it does not matter you know, what the what the race or the demographics of the performers are if this music has yet to be celebrated in that way. You know, in my early days of, of radio, you know, the number of people who would just tell me they had never even heard the name Florence Price, you know, was was so shocking to me that, you know, putting music like that on as much as possible was more important you know, at least for me, than digging yes. into the the issue of the, the racial politics. With that in mind, though, with that being said, I think there are um, ways to engage that conversation, especially as it applies to today's society. There's been a, a heightened um, focus and awareness of violence against Asians. Um, I was very much critical of some of the opening uh, discourses I saw about how black people need to step up and do our part, you know, instead of actually naming and censoring uh, the the white supremacy that is really the, the source of it all. Um, with all of those things in mind, do you consider um, your work, do you consider this recording an example of how we can come together, how we can celebrate something, someone, maybe from different perspectives, but still centering that person and, you know, uh, as a residual effect of that, um, learning more about each other and, and bringing our communities closer together. Yes, and Garrett, as you know, um, in the South, there is a rich tradition of Black and Asian solidarity. Um, in fact, yesterday I was at a screening of a documentary, which I'm not sure will be available uh, other than through educational circuits, but I do know that there's going to be a, a worldwide PBS broadcast of uh, Far East, Deep South. Mm, and it's wow. basically a documentary... Uh, centering around actually a family genealogy project, but what it ends up doing in the process is um, highlighting basically the Chinese grocers in Mississippi mm -hmm. and how the Chinese grocers basically, because they were also not white, ended up um, having kind of a black Asian solidarity and um, developing a rich tradition basically of, of, of the, Ch the Chinese in the Delta. And, and so to me... I think there are historical alliances that have existed that maybe have not been highlighted in the history books, but this alliance is, is, is not new. Maybe it's not 
prominently known, mm-hmm. but I uh, I think the ways in which the different uh, the the Asians and 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 the Black community have helped each other historically and continue to help each other historically. Um, uh, I see so many examples of it, and in some ways, I feel I see more examples of it because I'm living in the South. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And to me, it's personally, again, very healing because my biggest scar and trauma from the LA riots was uh, because Koreatown was very much a charged place right. where Korean um, business owners, liquor store owners often would have cultural uh, differences and, and cultural expectations that often created conflict with the black community. And, and that was the first time where I'll be completely honest. I was ashamed of being Korean. And I just thought, what are we doing as Koreans? You know, we need to do better. And, and in some ways, in a very indirect way, I, I sometimes wonder if my time here in the South has been a way to kind of heal that trauma Hmm. because I see so many examples uh, of historical alliances and especially now, um, as we are talking about the rise of Asian hate crimes during COVID, but also because of all the civil unrest that has happened because of George Floyd last summer, right. especially on this campus, if that can be a small microcosm for the pulse of where things are, there is enormous interest in, in, in solidarity. Um, now, whether Florence Price is an example of that, I'm not sure. I, I would like it to be, but I think I still grapple, going again to an earlier point, I, I still wonder what the ultimate impact of classical music as a totality often is for direct social justice and social impact. I would say having been trained as a classical musician, I still feel my personal um, voice that I'm most comfortable with is still in, in classical music. But I don't discount the fact that, for example, you know, volunteering with organizations, with social justice organizations, would that create a more immediate and direct impact? Sometimes I think yes, you know. Um, and so I'm very torn sometimes about whether, whether music does enough, whether music is able to do enough. But um, at least for now, um, if I were to answer this question today, I, I think I am really encouraged by, by the solidarity that the recording represents and the discussions that it has encouraged to further that question of how, how can we become a more inclusive um, and, and supportive community across racial lines. Yeah, yeah. Music isn't the final answer, but it's, it certainly can be considered a catalyst toward whatever that that final uh, answer is. Uh, exactly. How can how can folks um, buy uh, your recording of the Florence Price and uh, and learn more about you and your upcoming projects? Oh goodness, um, I, I am not a great self promoter, Garrett. Um, <laughs> I, I do have a website um, that is minimally updated. Um, I suppose my university. Uh, contacts would be the the best way to keep in touch with me. Um, And in terms of access to the recording, I think they're available through all sort of uh, major distributors. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and 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 congratulations uh, on that. 
Uh, to to wrap up here, I kind of wanted to tie it back around to uh, life in Arkansas. Uh, whenever this pandemic is over, when folks can uh, come and explore, you know, all the beauty that is uh, the natural state. I think Arkansas is the natural state. Is that correct? Um, yes. What what would be your uh, what would be your suggestions? Uh, for folks to when it comes to visiting Arkansas and maybe learning something about the state that uh, they didn't they they didn't know. Wow, um, I think there are a lot of outdoorsy folks here. Uh, maybe not surprising. So I think uh, living in the big cities, I think um, that was sort of um, for me uh, a, a translation process that needed to happen. I, I definitely enjoyed the conveniences of urban life, but there are beautiful trails and hikes here. Uh, Northwest Arkansas is very much uh, gearing up to be one of the bike friendly. Uh, cities. Mm -hmm. And so Bentonville and Fayetteville's bike trail, for example, has now been completed. So people can kind of cycle um, from Fayetteville all the way to Bentonville and beyond. Um, of course, culturally, um, uh, Alice Walton and, and sort of the Walmart oh, yeah. family oh, yeah. <laughs> have been very aggressive <laughs> in trying to build their um, cultural sort of statements of, of American art. And so, of course, Crystal Bridges, the Momentary oh, yeah. Museum. Um, are definitely uh, places that people should check out. But also, honestly, I think central Arkansas and also, um, you know, uh, geographically, Arkansas northwise is mountainous. And then, of course, um, south uh, is sort of where um, all the rice fields are. And so I mm -hmm. think if people are able to make uh, the, the drive, I think it's about three hours from Fayetteville to Little Rock. I think even visiting parts of Hot Springs, for example, and Little Rock, um, uh, one of the trails that I like uh, near the Buffalo is the Goat Trail. Um, I, there's lots of things to explore, both cultural and natural. Um, so maybe my suggestion would be to have a cultural day and then maybe to have a hiking day. It's a recording that you know, I know, you know, broadcasters and producers, we, we all know this recording of the Florence Price Violin Concertos. And, um, you know, I, I'm sure it's such an honor for Urging Kang to really be, as she kept saying, the reference recording right. for this incredible piece of music that so many people wouldn't have known otherwise. I wonder if, uh, Scott, before we get into the triloquy, I wonder if you can speak to Price as not only the name, but just one of the names that we should be saying when it comes to the traditional canon. I feel like we get into this habit of um, not saying the name Florence Price in a, in a way of proving that we know of more women composers or more black composers mm -hmm. than the one that people know. But what about lifting up Florence Price as the name that um, we say when we say Beethoven or Brahms, when we talk about an entire genre, an entire aesthetic um, of music. I wonder if you can speak to maybe one day Florence Price's name ascending to that status. I, I think that she's poised to be exactly that. 
um, with the renewed interest in her music and with recordings like Irjin Kang, being the reference point, you know, she set the bar high uh, in that recording. And I think that people are going to say Florence Price's name in ways that uh, show, um, point to other composers. Like, you know, um, Florence Price got me interested in this instrument or, mm -hmm. or, or um, Margaret Bonds, you know, because they were... Uh, yeah, and the story, roommates. the history of their story, right. and they all were that. Yeah, roommates together, and and if that's enough to go, okay, so uh, we're missing a huge portion of the canon in Florence Price's music. Let me go find what else is out there, and yeah. then maybe, and then maybe they discover Ruth Gibbs or Ethel Smythe or you know, other right? Florence Price, people. even as a means for people to discover the European canon, you sure, know, and those women over there. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. Well, huge thanks once, 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 once again to Urging Kang. Um, uh, I encourage everyone to go check out her recording of the Florence Price Violin Concerto and to help us, as, as we say, uh, prop up her name up there as one of the so-called Mount Rushmore composers of mm -hmm. so-called classical music. All right, let's hear from um, another great black woman to get us into the triloquy here. Don't worry about it. As soon as you step outside that door, you'll start feeling better. You'll remember you don't believe in any of this fate crap. You're in control of your own life. Remember? Once again there, the late Gloria Foster, famously um, the Oracle in The Matrix. Scott, I don't want to uh, spend too much time here because I don't want to keep it too heady, but in, in my frustrations with the week and seeing uh, everything that's going, frustrations with the W-E-E-K, uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and you know everything that's going on, it gets me to the idea of systems and, and systemic things. And in my most frustrated states, especially because I was sick late last week, shout out to everybody who wished me well on my Instagram story from my uh, food poisoning. You know, when I'm laid up in bed, of course, I'm going to return to, you know, the TV shows and the movies that I love. So The Matrix is on that list. So, I you know, I, I go there. And when I watch it and think about themes and connect them to the issues that we're seeing, it led me to the this idea and these sorts of narratives and online rabbit holes as uh, that, that describe the Oracle as the villain. And this is kind of what I mean by that in a nutshell, and I'll uh, apply it um, to, to some art situations. We have all of these matrices, if you will, these systems, these um, institutions that make moves that are supposed to be progressive in line with DEI. I'm thinking about the Met recently hired um, a, uh, a chief diversity officer here more locally. The Minnesota Opera has newly appointed a vice president of impact. And of course, these are black people. These are people of color being hired into these positions. As the Oracle is there to sort of convince Neo that, oh, well, this is what you're supposed to do, and I'm here for, you know, the savior of humanity. The Oracle needed Neo to do everything that he did throughout the course of those movies so that she could survive, so that the system, so that the Matrix and everything in it 
could survive, right? So this mm-hmm. is so when so when I'm high and sick and and going down my my thought processes, I connect that idea to arts institutions putting in front of us, putting in front of the world these hires of these positions that I'm not sure what they do. I don't mean to say that they're unimportant or unconsequential, but you know, a, a chief diversity officer isn't as clear as music director, right? When when, right. when it comes to that sort of thing. So th- th- that's that's all I mean there. So we we see them putting these folks in front of us, putting these oracles in front of us, when at the end of the day, they are still a part of those systems and need those systems to survive, to have their own positions and, and, and their own jobs. So for me, that puts into question, is that sort of hiring actually DEI work? I wonder what what you think about all that just like we were saying earlier that sometimes the melody is more important than the words i sure. think that i think that the job description is more important than the title because we, are we to assume that the diversity officer and the vice president of impact are going to have similar goals mm-hmm. okay uh, so how are we going to measure that so that when the next round of layoffs come through uh, this isn't some line item that can be easily gotten rid of in order to save some budget money. Um, so I guess what I'm getting at is, uh, does this person really have any gas, right? We were, we were talking about, okay, so music director or vice president of... Whatever, the, whatever. blank, yeah. Right. So uh, what's the job description? That'd be my question. What do you, course, what, what do you want, what do you, what do you want me to do and how are you going to measure my quote unquote impact? How are you going to measure my diversity gains? But what, but what about from the outside in? What do you think a Minnesota opera wants Minneapolis, the city or the state of Minnesota to see when they hire a black person into a position called vice president of impact? What do you think their goal is? Because they, they aren't listing the, the job description or, or whatever. So what do you think their goal is? Well, the Oracle, for some reason, was trying to talk Neo out of being the one. She was trying to talk him out of the idea of being, you know, no spoon. So what, are they trying to spin what the organization does in order to appear as though diversity initiatives are working or are actually being followed up on? And of course, well, well, quick side note. So you remember that Neo, th- this, is, this is how closely I watch these movies. You remember how Neo swallowed a what to, you know, that started his journey? The pill. What color was it? He swallowed the red pill. What color is the candy that um, that the, blue, the oracle? The what what color is the candy that the oracle offered to Neo, or that the oracle was eating in the kitchen? Rather, oh, I don't remember. It was it was red. Okay. <laughs> now, what, do what, you, what, what what does what does the oracle give Neo before he leaves that first time? She gives him a, a cookie, nice warm right? cookie and tells him that by the time he's done eating it, he'll feel better. He'll this feel is right some, as rain. Th- this is someone who is in charge of a, an entire you know humanity that is. Uh, in, imprisoned. You don't think there's a little coding in that cookie? You know, you don't you don't think there's a little coding in these diversity statements that they put out and these announcements of hires? That's what I'm getting at. 
I'm, I'm getting I'm getting at these hires and these announcements and these so-called DEI initiatives, not as things that help people of color and help marginalized communities, but fortify those structures and convince people that it is in their favor. If, if, if that makes sense, if you if you're following me with where I'm going. And the music that was playing on the radio in the background uh, is I'm beginning to see the light. Right. Are we? Moving on. <laughs> uh, so, uh, again, like I mentioned in the announcements, our good friend Tamberly uh, Ferguson, um, she, she had some feedback concerning what we were uh, some. I got a lot of feedback concerning the King FM thing we were talking about last week. Oh, did you? Tam- Tamberly gave us something that I thought was really interesting. I want to read, um, I'm, I'm not going to put all the all her business out here, but I'm going to read a little bit of the email. Um, she says, um, when we were talking about, and for folks who weren't here last week, I did a, a, a presentation for a radio station. Um, they have a goal of diversity in each one of their radio shifts. I went through 24 hours of their programming and pictured all of the uh, composers that are there. And of course, it's all whiteness, okay? And I sort of presented that as the visual to sort of stick into people's minds. Look, this is what's happening. This is this is what's going on. So Tamberly reached out and basically um, she was talking about how she believes um, folks in leadership at her station would respond, re- you know, referring to um, listening tests and clips and and that sort of thing. And and maybe there's an aspect of that um, that's needed. What, what was your what was your response to um, that that idea that maybe we need to get back into the listening labs or, or really reaching out to the people? My comment was that First off, she said that that, um, the information that that program director was using was something from the aughts, right? So we're talking about 20-year-old polling or testing or something like that. I I do know that most major broadcast companies do invest quite a bit of money in focus groups or Mm -hmm. polls or things like that to try to um, gauge what works and what doesn't and how they can change. you were asking me about getting I mean, back do you, on the do ship. You, I mean, do you think that's oh, yeah. uh, where we need to get back to? No, I don't think we need to get back to that because the landscape has changed from that. Um, we have to get away from the idea that just because it's a classical station and it's the only one in a market doesn't mean that that's the only game in town because the internet blew that up and then you have streaming services and uh, all sorts of different ways that you can get content on demand so why would you sit <laughs> you know you you have to you have to figure out a way to get people to sit through something they don't like in order to get to what they do right or at the very least something they don't know Right. So everything is, the landscape has changed. And you need to keep in mind that with all the options, um, you can't really have a clunker on your show. My thing is, when we talk about the focus groups and the listening groups, we're starting off wrong because if we have these lists of classical compositions to see what sorts of sounds people like the best, you are already defining classical. You, you are already putting what you can give this audience, give this community into a box. You're, you're putting parameters around that. I think maybe if we started in these focus groups with people bringing in 
what they like, maybe even bringing in what they think of when they think of classical music or or whatever, right. and then expanding from there. That that could be something. I so, did, yeah, I did get a chance to actually sit in on a focus group years and years ago at the station that I moved here from in Omaha, and I actually watched one of the guys in the focus group change somebody's mind on a piece of music in you know in that meeting in real time. Yeah. So the thing that comes to mind for me is selection bias. And let's throw a little bit in set of inception into the matrix here because not only are you selecting who you ask what do you like, you're selecting what of this do you like. And then even so if, if you, you if you remember at the Sphinx conference at when that one panel that you were on and I came up and said what do we have to do to get a focus group of the folks right here in this room? Yeah. You know, the let's let's ask the people of color what they want to hear. Rather see, than the thing is say, when you ask but when you ask those questions in those spaces, the people that need to be putting those focus groups together are not in that room. Right. They're nowhere to be seen. Right. That that's that's the problem. Well that you know, was my I, question. What does it take to get a focus group in that room? I mean that that that's for I guess that's for you to bring back to your job, huh? Mm. What, what 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 is that gonna take, you know? Um, I, I remember being in on, um, of, I, I've been a part of several focus groups and, and sat, sat in on them. One of the ones that I took part in um, at um, my former job, the group was very diverse. Like, it was a great group to have a focus group with. But the person actually delivering, like, I was just there as a fly on the wall or whatever. Um, the person delivering the, the information or facilitating the focus group was really dropping the ball because they didn't know how to communicate sure. with those people. So, you know, you have to have those people in the room as well. So, you know, getting back to the, you know, diverse hiring and, and, and making up these uh, things. I'm not saying that there, you know, can't be any good because I think most of these arts institutions need to hire people who just know how to talk to the people, who mm -hmm. just know how to talk mm -hmm. to the streets because mm -hmm. those, those, those people aren't there. So it's, is 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 multi-layered. The other part of Tamberley's question that I wanted to get in was training for music directors and music programmers. What is the training? I'll speak for myself in my first radio position where I have full autonomy over my show. My training was two degrees in classical music and 10 years as a performer. That mm -hmm. was my training as far as programming and, and all of that sort of thing. From from the less classical music performance side, what was the training when it comes to being that curator, being that programmer, that music director? Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm, you're I'm, asking, I'm asking me. I'm asking because you, you weren't a classical musician, but you, but you certainly are familiar with folks in programming that also are not. So, you know, what? let's get to that question. What is the training? What does it look like to create... A, uh, a curator of content who doesn't come from the classical tradition on the, on, as a performer or, as, or even as an educator? Well, that's some alchemy right there because you can find somebody that has a lot of experience like you have, um, but they're afraid of the microphone. You know, and they can't uh, verbalize it in the way that you do. For example, the station that I moved here from, they hired a guy who was a, an assistant conductor at one of the big organs at one of the big orchestras in Ohio. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's loads of experience. He was a conductor for crying out loud. Right. But bringing in that outside perspective is, 
is what was really needed or what was beneficial. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm hmm. sure. Is, isn't that, that interesting? An outside perspective. Okay. Okay. But it was still largely white and canon, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Because that's right. that's that's what he because conducted. Of, because of the sure. system that that conductor comes from. Right. The the systems that we were all bred from when it when it comes to our education that that whole big old matrix. So. Anyway, uh, thank you, uh, Tamberly. Thought I would um, shout uh, shout that out again. I, I got a bit of feedback concerning the the King FM thing, but mm. I thought Tamberly was asking some really good questions because I think it's probably worth us re-exploring and really taking some more time to dig into when we have more time of the question of how these people are being trained, how these people in these positions of power, you know, are, are, are being trained, know how to curate, understand, you know, we, we can talk about, you know, uh, what's rate was, uh, what's radio friendly, you know, listenability, but what does that really mean? And where does that vocabulary come from? So mm-hmm. may, maybe, maybe we'll have some time to, um, dig into that, but as, as we, um, wrap up here, just, um, bring it, bringing it back around full circle again, I know this one was running a little long, but as things happen in the world, we have a responsibility to, to respond to them and to use our platforms to, uh, to engage our audiences with what's, with what's happening. You know? in and, the world. And, and I see, you know, again, so despite what I might have planned for Triloquy this week, this is an example of that because it is my responsibility, especially considering that th- these are things that are impacting our communities. We are right here in the thick of it. So as we continue to uh, send warm thoughts, thoughts out to y'all and to the rest of the world, I hope that you will return the favor because it's getting tense around here. I'm getting a lot of those um, DMs and emails that I always get, you know, what can I do? What can I do? And instead of offering my classical response of that's your responsibility, figure it out. Don't put any labor on me. I'm going to tell you this. Start at your job. We just spent a lot of time talking about focus groups, talking about hiring, talking about, you know, who is positioned to make folks feel like action is actually happening. Most of y'all, are working at jobs of, of no fault of your own that does not center black equity. And that's, and that's just the reality. That is not one of the center pieces of the function of these companies and these organizations. Challenge that. See if you can't push folks toward making the work about that equity, no matter what sort of work you do. See if you can, in the break room or even in the workroom, inspire the conversation of what it would look like for your workplace to center racial equity in a way that would manifest in some real change and some real progress. That's what I got for you. Keep us in your thoughts and prayers. See you next week. (laughs) 